Podrick O'Keefe was born in Glownthorne, County Kerry, about 1888. Glownthorne is a remote place in the mountains, about halfway between Castle Island and Ballydesmond. His father was the principal of the local national school, and his mother, Margaret O'Callaghan, came from a well-known musical family, the O'Callaghans of Dune, near Kithsgame. Young O'Keefe spent many years of his childhood in O'Callaghan's, and it was here that he first learned to play the fiddle. He trained as a primary teacher, and when his father died, he became principal teacher of Glownthorne National School. We learned nothing from him for the river going to only to make clay pipes and bubbles. And I learned to smoke. The only thing I kept from him was I was going to for a couple of years when he was teaching. When he was teaching after I left, but uh, I didn't know how long. So he was in the finish, the parents of the children objected to him and uh, got him shifted. And that him down to Kilmurray. They had a brother of mine go to Kilmurray. He was uh, about six or eight years younger than I was. Lot him went to Kilmurray. He would be playing music for me and we'd be dancing around the school, going all around. All the seats would be right out in the centre and we'd go all around, cross-stepping, all this kind of thing. Would it be true to say that your memories of school are of dancing all day to his music? Mostly, mostly. There was a, hardly any lesson. There was there were also with the kitty kids because we were confident like it previous to that because he, he, his father died there, we got our tickets and he was brought from college and put on the, the job teaching himself and his sister, Mrs. Cannery. Padraig was a schoolmaster at Glownthorne, the national school, sometime before I met him, but he got tired of it and resigned. I'm told that one morning after an all-night dance, he decided to walk into Castle Island to quench a devouring thirst he had. A lovely summer's morning, about six, and the birds singing around him, and why wouldn't he? Well, he was enjoying the pint, by all accounts, when the hackney man came in and told him the inspector was below, trying to hire the car to go out and inspect Glownthorn School, and he'd drive him out first and come back for the inspector. Padraig had had a set to with the same inspector about something or other, and he told the hackney man to take the inspector to inspect the school, with my compliments, he said and I hope he finds everything in order there because he won't find me there anymore. And that's how Padre resigned from the job. Well, this is the school where where O'Keefe taught, this is Glowntown National School and uh, like his house, it is very dilapidated, windows broken and the walls rotting and the ceiling uh, rotting away. Now, the, the school, in fact, it's, it's, it's a two-room school now. Just only one room at that time. Just a one-room school? Yes, I'd say one room at that time. Was, he, was it just a one teacher school? No, there was a two teacher school. He was the principal? He was the principal. I see. And his sister was here in the side, like they were, they were, it was a mixed school. Oh, his sister taught with his him? His sister taught with him. Did she continue to teach after he well, she left? Did. She did indeed. We'll just walk into the other rooms and just say hi. This is the school hall anyway. 
in fact, this would be his, what he would be teaching, I would say, and this would be his part of it. This is the, obviously the principles yes, from here. Not, yes. The senior classes. Yes, the senior classes. Well, it's a fine old school building, but it's very dilapidated and run down and falling apart, really. Um, nothing on the desk, I suppose, is there? Some names here. Eileen Jones, maybe some relation of yours there. She was indeed. Yeah. Serious. Jimmy Connor. Willie, something or other. Nell Jones, 1971. After being removed from his post at Glanton, Padre got a job for a short period with the Ministry of Labour in Tralee. However, he didn't stick this very long and went back to his native place to become an itinerant teacher of music. It was as a teacher of the fiddle that he made a living for the rest of his life. Jerry Collins was one of his pupils. Well, I thought he was a great fiddler. To, to me, he was one of the best. And I don't think, Pat, that he ever really passed down any of his great tradition to his players. None of his pupils ever seemed to reached the standard even there were great players undoubtedly Dennis Murphy was a powerful player Jerry McCarthy was a great player Paddy Cronin was a great player and all of them but he, any of them never seemed to have Keith, Keith's touch no he had this light bow hand and the beautiful rhythms he used to knock out of that fiddle even the man had never a fiddle to me he'd only a board and still he was able to knock beautiful music out, out of a board what do you mean when you say he had only a board? Well, I had a fiddle myself, and when the great players came along of today, the present players, they only counted it as a board. It wasn't even a fiddle. I even got rid of it. And uh, I know it now from being playing good fiddles belong to other people. And uh, that man, you'd stay for hours listening to him when he was come to, t to give me lessons at home by the fireside, playing that board even. So... I think he was marvellous. And against that then, he had a style of his own, you take... He, I thought he was a great traditional player because he played traditional music. Uh, I carry traditional music anyways. Matter of fact, because today you have these great players, there are several of them. And, and they use their boat a lot to make notes. It's beautiful music to listen to, we know. And we are listening to it tonight, still listening to it forever. But, partly, would get 12 or 13 notes under one bow. He, he kept, he convinced me all the time that you should use the bow at full length. And he got, uh, as I said, 12 or 13 notes under the one bow with a, with, uh, a couple of Ludians thrown in as trills. And I thought he was great. And uh, he was pure genius in as regards music because he, he'd be often pinning a tune for me by the table and he'd have me playing the tune, the tunes I got this Sunday before, like, and uh, he'd be whistling away through his teeth and pinning the music for me, and he'd have me playing, and he, this day he said, uh, he stopped up and looked at me, and he said, are you playing that as I pinned it? And I said, I think I am, Padre, you are no such a thing, he said. You're after using a nook bow instead of a down bow. Well, until this day, I don't know the difference between an up bow or a down bow, but he did.
Paddy, of course, was the, the main teacher for the music that he and I decided that I'd bring him on anyway. So I, I remember well the first night he came here to was a, a small Christmas Eve. And uh, he said to me, I'll write a half a tune for you first. So um, he wrote half a tune anyway, and he showed me the way that I should go about it, and uh, you're ahead, no problem in the world. Because he wrote it in a simple way, like in the figures, do you know? I had no bother, and he came then in about a furnace time again, I had that half a tune off, and he wrote two tunes for me the second time. So from that on then, he was right, every time he'd come, he'd write from five to six tunes for me. He held that during the course of ten or twelve years. He'd come today and witness him for a fortnight after that again, and it could happen that it should be a month or something, maybe a month. If you went on a bit of a tear or something. Yes, yes, that's right. Did that bother you in any way? <coughs> no. Never bothered me. Because if he didn't come, I could always meet him in scattered Lynn anyway. And he'd write a few tunes for any place you'd meet him. At that time, at that age of the world, you had no music sheets that I remember anyway. They came in later, of course, about 10 or 12 years later. And he was get a copy book and he'd, he was to draw five lines about uh, less than an eighth of an inch, maybe sixteenth of an inch apart or something like that. And uh, uh, the five lines were representing four strings. And it was between the lines that he put the figures. But uh, I remember well the first time that he came to me, uh, he wrote the five lines and I, I was all the time inclined to think that the five lines were the strings, do you see? So I was inclined to play on the strings, not between the lines. So he said to me, there are five lines there, he said. And I said he couldn't understand it well. And he said, how many, uh, how many ditches? He said, would it take to make four roads? So I said, four ditches? No, he said to take five ditches to make four roads. Representing the four strings of the fiddle, you see. So I got into it and straight away. Patrick never married. He called his fiddle the missus when he had one. And he told us what happened to a good fiddle he had once. The first wife, he said, one night at a spree after I played for a while, I was out at the gable end with some lads and I was handed a mug of porter. I left her down dressed against the wall and I forgot her. And later in the morning didn't I find her there in the rain. She never did a day as good after that. Fell asunder from the rheumatics on me. The early O'Keefe recordings show a highly developed individual style. And part of his importance in the Schlieve-Lugel tradition is as a stylist. He had two distinct real tempos, a lilting virtuoso and a galloping dance. He bowed a lot, or slurred a lot, as taste dictated. His taste was impeccable and his touch clean. He told me he had his bowing system from the old Schlieve-Lugel fiddlers, Tom Billy and Callaghan and others. I'm no expert on the bow, but I can remember Padraig finishing his fast music on the up bow, and I've noticed his pupils doing the same. This, of course, makes for a reversal in places, and I think it's the hallmark of the O'Keefe style. Padraig could read and write, both tonic sulfur and staff. Indeed, I have some of his manuscripts somewhere, and his penmanship was a picture to behold. He invented a system of writing down tunes for his pupils, which was ingenious, simple, and foolproof. He ruled four lines denoting the strings of the fiddle and indicated the notes to be played by the number of the finger, one, two, three, or four, on the fingerboard, and linked the notes to be played on one bow movement with an arc or a slur sign. Of course, 
Podrick was a well-read man, and not all our time together was devoted to music. personal friend of Dennis Murphy's and Judith Clifford from Billy. I had met the most of them. But when I heard Padwick playing, I thought there was something in his music that nobody ever heard. That time with the rush were fairly good. But Padwick had something, whatever he was able to do as far as fingering in music was concerned, and the writing of music then being a teacher, of course, he had the education, he was beyond us, we couldn't go up and down with Padre Joachim, no way in the world, but he had that influence in traditional music. I had been listening to records of Michael Coleman, James Morrison, Paddy Kilhorn, and then again when I turned around and heard Padre playing the same tune, I thought Padre influenced me more than anyone. Whatever was in his, he the real traditional art for traditional music. Going to skirt the Sunday evenings. Just when we get close to Lyons' pub, you could know exactly whose Padraig was playing, and there was a good few music- musicians going in there at the time. But for some reason, you could be down halfway of the village, you could know Padraig's touch. He had a beautiful state for playing the old traditional air like. And I bet his music was something, something sweet. hard to describe style in this way that while you might satisfy yourself about what you're saying if you try and describe it to a person who's never heard it or indeed might not have any interest whatsoever in a particular kind of music it often struck me that what kind of elements would you pick out to describe and to let the other person be aware of the of the nature of the thing you were talking about with poor again with all the music. The first thing that struck me was the speed it's played at. Now I don't mean to play it too quickly, but they did play at uh, a speed that struck me was demanded by dancing by people who were in the top of their health. <laughs> you know, that is, there was a, a kind of a strain of excitement in the thing, kind of vigor in it, and you could hear, we say, a kind of an insistent beat in it. But at the same time, what struck me about Porrick and about Dennis Murphy is that notwithstanding that, as it were, which is the, the first requisite, I think, of dance music, that you do get this strength, particularly in real playing, that there was a, a, a melodic touch in it too, um, a kind of a buoyancy in it, and that, um, it, well, a feature that's common to like with other music too, you see, uh, kind of coming very slightly to up to the notes, as it were. It kind of gives us a, a further lift in it. But um, 
when I heard Porrick afterwards, like on the radio, the first time I must confess I was disappointed because it was a very late recording I heard playing in error and there was a kind of weakness in the thing I think but afterwards then when I heard the earlier recordings and that kind of thing I, I knew of course I, that the reputation that I had heard of him was fully justified. Uh, another thing struck me about Porrick's playing was that it reminded me somehow or another of Patrick Kelly and Cree at St. Clair and um, why naturally there was uh, traffic across the channel from one side to the other from Clare to Kerry. Uh, there was even a more intimate connection between the two but I've never heard anybody say that you know that they were able to produce a link with say Scanlon from whom uh, Patrick Kelly's music derived to some extent anyway whether he was connected with Porrick or that I don't know that. That brings us to the question as a technician how would you how would you uh, compare him say to say to a professional violinist how technically good was he from what you can gather from the the tapes you've listened to? Um, really it's a matter of taste as it were um, I've heard, we say, Patrick Kelly, other people, you know, Dennis Murphy and these who were top fiddle players, and just curiosity, I used to ask them, what did they think of Coleman? Invariably, the answer among fiddle players was that they never heard any person better. There was no question at all of their thinking that somebody in Kerry was better than Coleman, or somebody in Clare was, that he was regarded as the master altogether. Now, Pipers haven't quite the same opinion of Coleman that the fiddle players. They're not judging him on the, his technique as a fiddle player, though. It's that the the music is not quite the way they have heard it, as it were. Uh, not the notes now, but there is something in it that differs somehow from piping. And uh, on that account, that's, they're not kind of as madly keen on Coleman, say, as... Uh, the fiddle players are. Well, I suppose there's a certain spontaneity in folk music, which uh, is is an individualistic thing, and uh, that the, the technical aspect sometimes that the the spontaneous aspect w would would override the technical aspect. That that, that is more important. That, oh, that there oh, should be this. Oh, it is indeed. Yes, yeah. It's the. It's not how well the cake is made, but how it tastes. I mean, is really what counts. He was a music master in the very old tradition and there were as many stories about him as there were about his kinsman, oh yes I think I'm sure he was, his kinsman owned Ruo Suluwain centuries before him. The stories were rather similar in form, many of them apocryphal I suppose, but as in all such cases adding up to that certain remote reverence in which a people hold those who have a particular talent and who take to the road, go to the fair and don't bother to come back like everyone else. They stray from the recognised path of righteousness and are forgiven because they have talent. O'Keefe's life as a teacher of the fiddle was precarious. 
He lived in what he made from the music lessons. And as his pupils were mostly in the mountainous districts around the villages of Guinea Ballydesmond, Knocknagree and Scarteglen, he was forever walking the narrow winding roads of this hilly country. There were houses along the road where he could stay the night and he would call on one of these when the pubs closed. Well, he was a very athletic looking man, Pat. He was a big, brave man. He used to always wear a, a big tweed cap and a black suit. The shirt with the, you know, the stud button. And uh, he often arrived to me, you know, and it would start raining while he'd be talking or playing or having a cup of tea and writing, pinning down the tune for me. And then he'd say, I'd better be hitting the road. And naturally enough, I'd give him a few bob. Shillings were scarce at the time, but he liked the, the old bob, and I always gave it him. And he thought a lot of me for that. When, he, if, when he'd start off to go if it was raining, he'd always take a safety pin from behind the cage of his coat. And he'd turn him out like a donkey's hands around under his jaw and pin the coat and hit it for Castle Island. There was a fire in Lyons of Scartiglin, and that's where I first saw him, sitting near the wall on the right-hand side of the fire in a blue serge jacket that had looked good once. The long face, somewhat melancholy in repose, was deeply lined. The eyes lit up when he made one of his salty remarks on the human condition. And he never spoke outside of his own experience and a geographical world that stretched somewhere beyond Killarney. Truth to tell, he must have been well past his best when I met him, that is, as a musician, as a fiddler. What he had, of course, was a truly prodigious musical memory and a repertoire more extensive than probably anyone else around. At this stage, he had met and been recorded by every music lecture from here to the Midwest of America, and he took them all in stride. I lived alone here in Scattergate. I watched the old tailoring trade and all that kind of thing, like, and uh, I lived alone for years, and uh, uh, I'm only a few hundred yards from the village of Scattergate, like, and when Patrick was dumped out of the public house and he was finished, like, and all this kind of thing, he, he'd have to foot at home about five miles to his native place, to Pond, like, but he always visited my place, in generally, one night every week anyway, like he stayed with me like and we often came home drunk together from the pub like you see but uh, uh, we slept together and all that kind of thing like and talked late into the night talked often all night you see yeah I was at the breakfast with me in the morning and things like that we hurried go and I'd give him a few old bob half a crown or something like that and you know but he'd have a great old tune or two for me like to understand I used to play bit in the Ulan pipes like and uh, he, you know, I was right, I knew when I wanted or anything like that, like, but uh, sometime after I married, like, I, you know, I lost contact with him then after marrying for a bit, like, you understand, but he would call in that time, but this evening he called, the sun was setting, the sun was setting back and we were, you know, standing in front of my door and we were looking back over the Schleswig Mountains and the sun was setting and we were talking, but he had this little tag, uh, he put it out of his pocket and uh, uh, he handed it to me, like, it was like a tag up his shirt or something like that, but, that was, I looked at it anyway, the, the rest of the people that were there, that was two or three more that were standing and I didn't see what was happening at all, but there was, I see, five shooting that and like, and I knew what that meant, like, you see, it was the only thing he ever did ask me for anything, like, 
O'Keefe is one of the great carriers of the Schlieve Lucre tradition. He is the linkman from Tom Billy Murphy, the turn of the century film master from Bally Desmond. O'Keefe brought the rich repertoire of dance music and slow airs right into the middle of the 20th century. He did this by passing on the music to his pupils and fellow musicians. Well, all the... He had, we say, he had advantages in both ways. There were at least uh, very high qualities in the, in the reels he had. We say the dune reel comes to mind and those... They were... Uh, Strong melodically, as it were, they weren't just skeletons that you come across in other places. They were well ornamented, well uh, varied, and that. And at the same time, too, he had, I think, the the real attractive feature, I think, of monster music of the jigs, the old jigs, of some kind of a persuasive kind of attraction about them. And Pardy had a great deal of those. Uh, a thing too struck me. Saying the rising sun and there are other reads to the morning star and those that Porrick plays and, and other people of course that have commented on the monster too. That there is a, a little wee streak of loneliness or, or uh, I don't know, not sorrow, but there is that, that melancholy. Melancholy, yes, that is really the word. That that is evident in some of these things, and you get, you know, you're caught up that they are uh, tunes to be humoured in that way of playing even though they don't lose their attraction when they are being hammered out, we say, for a, a set. But there is that other 
attraction that you can listen to them afterwards and uh, I find them very appealing as it were. I never knew him to have a fiddle. I suppose he must have had long ago. There seemed to be one permanently in Lions of Scarta Glen, his maybe. But elsewhere, he just reached out his hand and took the nearest. Dennis Murphy described himself as a pupil of his. So did Jerry McCarthy. And you can still hear him in the melodian playing of Johnny Leary. Of the tunes you have today, and you ha you must have as many as probably anybody in your own way, uh, how many of these would you say, in one way or another, you can trace back to O'Keefe? I mean, some you'd have got from Dennis Murphy, with whom you played for a long, yeah, long time. Yeah. And you'd have got some, I suppose, from Julia Clifford. But yeah. how many would you say go back to O'Keefe, being the kind of the primary source, if you like, of the music? I suppose the majority of them, because... It's what music I got from Dennis Murphy and Julie Clifford as his father, because that's giving those to us, uh, Dennis and Julie too. They got a few from their father, definitely. Their father was a brilliant counter-parent in which player. But I, I would say the majority of them would belong great reputations and they had a tune for every day of the week, you see, which was 365 unless it was leap year, of course, you see. And uh, it's not to be taken that somebody counted them, but uh, 300, 400 is not, you know, it's not an exaggeration at all for a good player. I knew Sonny Brogan years ago had stopped noted down the names of the reels he knew when he had reached 300. And he was still certain, of course, that there were more. Uh, Paul now would have been in that class that I suppose he could have played up to 400 or more anyway. In the 20s and 30s and right up to the late 40s, house dancing was a feature of life in all of Schlieve-Lokra. There was no television, the cinema had just about made its appearance, and only the occasional house had a radio set. But the people had their music and their dances. In some districts there were house dances seven nights of the week, and the local fiddlers and musicians played for these, as they did for the crossroad dances, the American wakes, and the raffles. The dance aspect is very important in this sleeve lucre tradition. The number of dance tunes easily make up the major section in the corpus of the music and give it its most distinguishing characteristic. Well, house dancing in this locality is existed as long as I remember it. When I was a mere young fella, uh, all over the locality there was house dances every night. 
Uh, we live in an area here in Schlieflokra where uh, quite a lot of our young people had immigrated in the early part of the century. And these occasions meant having dances before they went to America, or Australia or any other country. They went and those were known as American wakes. Now they were big uh, nights of dancing and music. Then you also had um, raffles which was carried on in this part of the country and you had biddy dances and any occasions such as threshing machines and so on and so forth and all the occasions were uh, were occasions for house dancing. So we had, uh, as I say, when I was growing up, uh, we had to dance seven nights of the week in different houses around the locality. Scattered throughout the locality? Scattered around throughout the locality. What was the purpose of the raffles? Well, the purpose of the raffles mostly were, at that particular time, there was no such thing as um, dole or, uh, we'll say, social security or social welfare. And mm. after a poor man rearing a big family needed a, a certain amount of money that would tidy him over the Christmas to buy the Christmas. So they usually ran a dance and you paid going in and you got bread or tea during the night and that dance went on the morning and the result was maybe there would be maybe 10 or 15 pound would be collected that night and would be given to the poor family. That was the idea of the raffles in my time. I've always felt that the music, to some extent, reflects the character of the people. Um, especially, I'm thinking of the, the, the dance music, the sets, uh, the, the polka music, uh, the slides and so on. Um, and that there's a quality in it that isn't even Christian. There's a certain sort of uh, pagan, Rabelaisian sort of quality in it. And well, in the dances themselves too. Well, in the dance, well, not so much we say in, in the actual form of the quadrille, as it were. That's a, a civilised kind of a thing. It's, it, you might say it's mathematically or structurally a simple thing, but in the way it's, we say, the way it stands, the way I saw it danced in Kerry or saw sets in Kerry, that did remind me that maybe the parish priests had some little reading on this side, that there is a kind of an animalism in this thing, and in a good state of excitement, you, the, that brings out the music also, and the operations of two interacting together makes a, a few occasions I can... You know, I can still feel a kind of a, a thrill from having looked and seen and heard music. But I'm afraid, generally, that that height, excitement, that thing is, is notably absent. Playing music good, you want to be good physical strength, good form, and that kind of thing. It struck me that the reason why I wasn't depressed the first time I heard it, it was an error. Well, uh, I thought Paul had difficulty in keeping the bow on the string even, so that he, uh, I'm not sure whence it was made, but certainly he wasn't in the, the prime of life. And it was only when I heard the other ones that, you know, I felt well really 
the reputation was justified. O'Keefe lived a hard life, drinking and playing late into the night, and not always eating proper meals. Nor did he change his way of life with old age. He continued to drink and walk miles and miles of bog road from village to village. Death caught up with him in the black winter of 1963. His friends and neighbours had noticed that his health had failed, and when he became ill in February 1963, he was taken to the county hospital in Tralee. It was here he died. His funeral was one of the biggest ever seen in Scartaglen, and he was buried in the old graveyard of Kilmurray. Here in Kilmurray, is the old family plot of the old keys. And to see her, John O'Leahy, O'Keefe in Teague, National School, who died in May the 1st, 1905. And his wife, Margaret O'Keefe, Nee Callahan, died in November the 14th, 1938. Their daughter, Molly, died in July the 11th, 1908. Son, John, died in Chicago on July the 24th, 1927. And their son Patrick died in February the 22nd, 1963. That was a well-known musician, the late Patrick O'Keefe. So it's here in this grave he is buried. Daniel Cochrane had a story, short story, called The Bulgarian, about a return gank who went on and on about the singing of Count John McCormick. And when the polite and bitchy women reminded him that they had the glorious voice of McCormick on a gramophone record there and then, he dismissed it and said, I want to see him sing. Now the recordings we have of Keefe do not, I think myself, reproduce him at his best. But even if they did, I would still want to see him play in Scart or in the back room of Tom McCarthy's in the broad main street of Castle Island. 